Welcome to the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship of McMinnville podcast. Founded in 2007, UUFM is a gathering place for people who embrace a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are located in the heart of Oregon's Willamette Valley wine country. Please visit us on the web at macuuf.org, M-A-C-U-U-F dot org. And if you are ever in or near the McMinnville area, don't hesitate to stop by and visit us. UUFM gathers in love and service for justice and peace. Well, I am uh, delighted to introduce to you today, um, of course he's returning to us, uh, Reverend Mark Gallagher. He has um, served for 21 years as pastor of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Vancouver in Washington, having previously served several other West Coast congregations briefly. He still lives in Vancouver and has a private practice ministry of preaching, teaching, and leading workshops. He has spoken at UUFM several times over the years. Thank you. Looking forward to it, Mark. Well, good morning. It's great to be back with you again. I uh, often like to say uh, that what I think human beings are fundamentally here for, here on this earth, here alive, is to realize our deeper, truer selves. A lot of that means coming to know ourselves more deeply and truly as individual persons and then living more authentically as we come to know ourselves more truly. It also means, and today this is our focus, it means pondering what sort of being are we? We say we're human beings, but what does that mean? What is the relationship of a human being to the animals, plants, rocks, rivers, stars, and great mystery. Now, in the traditional story of our Western culture, a few thousand years ago, the world was called into being by the command of a creator called God, Yahweh, or Allah. The creator made the world an expanse of land and waters under a dome of sky and then made the plants and animals and put them into the world. Finally, the creator fashioned human beings from a lump of soil and gave them dominion over all the things of the world. We were made, so the story goes, in the creator's own image. Now, since we're the ones telling the story, it's not hard to see that this is actually us making the creator in our own image, a sort of self-flattery. And yet, there is a sense in which this may also reflect a deep intuition that somehow we human beings have some of the qualities of the creator. It's not just the Bible, but 
many other ancient and primal accounts tell of human beings either being endowed with or somehow stealing some of the Creator's special powers. Long have we human beings looked at ourselves and at the other animals and wondered, where do we fit in this picture? I think we must have done that much, much more before we all lived in cities, right? We have physical bodies and we move around and make sounds like the other animals. We eat and sleep and breathe and eventually die as they do. And yet something does seem different about us. Putting the origin story aside, human life actually does seem to involve levels of depth and meaning and feeling beyond that of other animals. We may care tenderly for animals, but even vegans generally do not consider it murder to kill an animal. I'm going to presume that all meat eaters would not consider it murder. We need some sort of understanding about our place in the grand scheme. And even if we ourselves don't personally think about this kind of thing much, our cultures have and do and provide us with a reckoning that puts things into perspective. Now, in recent times, like the last few centuries, the careful observation of nature has given rise to a very different kind of account. This new story, still being worked out, is stupendously more magnificent and astonishing than the traditional religious stories. And it applies equally to all people, regardless of culture. It's not a different story for each culture. It's one story for all of us, which would be verifiable to any who would look closely. Surely many elements of this story are already familiar to you, but I think it behooves us to contemplate the story altogether and to do it here in a community of meaning. According to the new story of who we are, an unimaginably vast universe burst forth from a mysterious oneness, or they call it singularity, just undifferentiated oneness. And that occurred very much longer ago than anything we had been capable of imagining. And that coming forth took shape mainly in the form of stars and clusters of stars, which we call galaxies. Stars consisting of just the simplest elements, hydrogen and helium, very simple. They burn for what we consider eons, unfathomable eons. But in the end, some of them explode, which spews forth what's left of them in a giant space cloud of dust. These explosions are so intense that the simple elements, hydrogen and helium, are fused together, some of it, into more complex elements like carbon, silicon, and iron. 
for whatever mysterious reasons, it so happens that these new elements are more complex and they fit and bond together in myriad, myriad ways. So that out of just about a hundred elements, very few, many, many millions of combinations of these elements are possible. And we call those chemical compounds. As new stars form from the dust of these explosions with these complex elements and forming chemical compounds, these clouds of material swirl around the star that they've come from or a nearby star and sometimes they clump into planets which then encircle the star. Planets turn out to be very interesting in that they are not burning like stars. Stars are all burning. Planets are not, which means they are far, far more stable. Planets are a much more stable kind of place. Stable enough that something besides burning can go on there. On at least one such planet, the one we call Earth, gobs of these chemical compounds began to engage in organizing themselves into complex, self-regulating systems, a process we call biological life. Even the simplest single-celled organism is stupendously more complex than a mere pile of chemicals. I pause to ponder that for a second. It's hard to grasp how much more there is to even the simplest virus than just a pile of chemicals. These metabolic processes are such a radical change over the mere sloshing around of stuff that I believe we must now speak of living beings. A profound and mysterious threshold has been crossed. We don't know how that came about. These single-celled organisms gradually diversified, more and more different kinds, and together they gradually generated a remarkably different planetary environment than what it was at first. For example, they changed the composition of the atmosphere radically. For over 3,000 million years, three-quarters of the Earth's history for three quarters of the Earth's history, life consisted only of single-celled organisms, microbes far too small to be seen. Then the second jaw-dropping development occurred. Different kinds of organisms that made their living in different ways sometimes found that their ways of life were so mutually advantageous that they clustered together and formed colonies. 
each one profiting from something the other did. And some of these alliances became so strong and persisted over such length of time that a membrane grew around the whole thing, creating a kind of multi-celled superorganism. A whole bunch of them together, functioning as one. Like jellyfish, sponges, worms, things we think of as very simple, but which are a quantum leap beyond the single-celled organism. Truly a superorganism. Soon-ish, arrangements inside these multi-celled organisms became more and more complex with metabolic organs like stomachs and lungs, like internal transport systems like blood and blood vessels, like mechanisms for moving themselves around through space purposefully in order to find food and to avoid becoming food. There developed organs sensitive to light and sound and smell, receiving information from the outside world, sending instructions to other parts of the complex body of the superorganism in order to coordinate affairs because order inside a superorganism must be maintained. Chaos is incompatible with life. The advent of these communities of billions of specialized and highly organized cells was the beginning of creatures as we would recognize them. Oh, okay, we'd say, okay, even a jellyfish, right? Okay, that's something. A microbe, you wouldn't even see it. Then there was, from there it was Katie bar the door. Once these Creatures started differentiating organs and tissues inside themselves and learned how to coordinate the whole business. Anything became possible. From jellyfish to clams to fish with bony structures. Plants take root. Insects, amphibians, reptiles, dinosaurs begin crawling about on the land. Some of them develop wings to fly about through the air. Some develop a daring life strategy, warm-bloodedness. They generate heat in order to keep their bodies at a high metabolic temperature. This comes at a tremendous cost in terms of how much they've got to eat to keep that up. But it enables them to function so much better that it turns out to be worth it. These become mammals, giving birth to live young and astonishingly nursing their newborns with milk from their own bodies until they grow to adulthood. This is the genesis of personal relationship and of emotions of a higher order. Mammal mothers nursing their young. You know, fish and snails, don't do anything like that, right? This continued relationship and investment in one another begins with mammals, mothers, nursing their young. 
Now, somewhere in this unfolding, sentience becomes a quality of living creatures, being a locus of experience. Did this come about at the very beginning? Do microbes have some kind of sentience? Or did it only emerge at a later point? How much richness of experience do we require in order to call it sentience? All these questions are wide open for pondering. It's clear, though, that sometimes at least, living beings are centers of experience. That's really my point here. Living beings are centers of experience, at least sometimes. They feel pain. They exhibit responses we can only reasonably interpret as emotion. In other words, there's somebody in there. Now, very recently in this story, just the last one one-thousandth of it, a small portion of this living stream has broken off from the rest, developing new degrees of awareness, intelligence, and nuanced experience. The human beings. About seven million years ago, a branch of primates in East Africa split off from the line which would then later produce chimpanzees. And that branch began undergoing rapid evolutionary change. These primates were forest dwellers. They had already evolved to climb in trees and live off of fruit. So this equipped them with thumbs and fingers. Very good for grasping tree branches and later very handy for grasping stones and manipulating them skillfully. Life in trees had also given them partially upright posture. Now they walked around on their knuckles but could stand up. As Africa entered an extended dry period, the great forests receded and were replaced by extensive savannas or grasslands. To make their way in a land of tall grasses, these primates began walking more and more upright. Besides allowing them to see over the grasses, it had the advantage of freeing their hands, which were nimble and could hold objects which could turn out to be useful. Upright posture had the side effect of giving the vocal cords more room in which to vibrate. The upright posture frees this area. <clears throat> and that allowed the uh, proto-humans to make a much wider range of sounds vocally. That is not speech, but it is a situation which in which speech becomes more possible. Some kind of evolutionary positive feedback loop seems to have gone into effect, particularly involving the brain. Sophisticated animal tracking and food gathering strategies called for greater intelligence and more nuanced group communication. So larger and more sophisticated brains were advantageous rather than just an expensive waste of energy. But brains live inside bony skulls, skulls, a brain case. Given the pelvic structure of primates, if a newborn 
had a skull anywhere near the size of an adult human's birth would be impossible. The head would just never make it out. So somehow it came to pass that the proto-human infant would be born with a brain not much bigger than a chimpanzee, but with the plates of its skull unsealed. This allowed it to expand as it grew. Right? Can you see like, like a, a bone, like a, a, th- a leg bone can grow by going out like this can grow at the ends and become longer. It can grow out and become thicker. But a case, if it's solid, cannot do that. It would have to stay the size that it was. But the unsealed plates made possible for that case to expand like this. Physically, what that meant was that the mature humans could have brains much larger than they could be born with. But even more important, far more important as it turns out, is the fact that the brain develops differently out in the stimulus-rich environment of the outside world than it does in the dark, quiet, muted environment of the womb. Humans have larger brains than most other animals. But what most distinguishes the human brain is that it has vastly more connectivity among its brain cells. And those connections are formed in the meaning-rich environment in which it grows up. Other animals learn in the course of their lives, but their brains are almost entirely formed before they begin the learning process. A big limiting factor In humans, the learning and socialization process actually shapes brain development. This one factor hugely increased the swiftness with which these new creatures could adapt and change. It no longer needed to wait for natural selection to evolve changes in the species. It could change its quality of experience and its behavior more in the course of one lifetime than natural selection would do in a thousand generations. This development made the human infant more helpless than any other animal's offspring. And it made their period of dependency longer. So that's obviously a big disadvantage. If these proto-humans were going to survive, they would have to have longer, more nurturing relationships with their young. And this they did. And that in turn provided yet richer social environment for the young to grow up in, which in turn promoted even more robust development of brain and mind. They began crafting and using tools of increasing sophistication. We don't often appreciate what a monumental breakthrough tool-making actually is. Think about it for a minute. We have an animal taking material in the outside world, fashioning it to its imagined purpose, and then using it as an extension of their body. 
talk about accelerating the evolutionary process. How long do you suppose it would take to evolve a body part to function like a knife? Okay, so say after 20 million years, you finally have your knife-like appendage. Well, you better be content with it because you can't very well decide to trade it in for something else. By contrast, a human can, in a moment's time, set down the knife and pick up a spear, or in due time, a fishnet, a flute, a plow, or a pen. Each human individual now has all those extensions. Even if your direct ancestor didn't develop the tool, it is available to you, which is not the case with genetic inheritance. The early humans learned to control and use fire, which allowed them to cook food and thereby exponentially increased their range of diet. How long do you suppose it would take to evolve a digestive tract capable of digesting this, that, and the other thing? With fire, bingo, we're omnivores. We can eat almost anything. Somewhere in this mix came the development of spoken language and conceptual thought. This is very difficult for us to look back and learn much about because speech does not leave fossils or artifacts. It's blowing in the wind. The advent of language was surely mind-blowing, literally. Experientially, language and conceptual thought are probably what most contributed to the burgeoning human sense of being a very different sort of creature. Language is what most made us think, oh boy, we're really different from these others. It's kind of an exalted feeling and kind of an estranged feeling, lonely however, whichever way you want to look at it. With language and conceptual thought, the world in which humans lived was becoming more and more one defined by their own imagination. Human experience was more and more in relation to shared ideas which are verbally spoken. And by the way, when we say human, we may think that this is synonymous with our own species, Homo sapiens, but that's not so. For several million years, pre-human primates made their way, holding their own in small numbers with the modest advantages that upright posture, somewhat larger brains, and free grasping hands afforded. Several million years of that, and then just about two and a half million years ago, some of those transition to what we consider humanness, using tools, fire, clothing, developing language, 
and significant culture. We call these Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and Neanderthal. Just about 200,000 years ago, less than one-tenth of the time in which humans existed, our species, Homo sapiens, came on the scene. So for most of human existence, Homo sapiens was not part of the picture. And for most of our species' existence, we lived alongside other species of humans. The last of them disappeared only about 30,000 years ago. Yet another huge game changer was in store. Just about 10 to 12,000 years ago, very recent, very, very recent in the scheme that we're looking at, right? Just about 10 or 12,000 years ago, in widely scattered human communities around the world, from Africa to Europe, Asia, and America, a series of cultural developments dramatically changed the human situation. It is called the Neolithic Revolution. Dogs, sheep, goats, buffaloes, cows, pigs, and chickens were domesticated. Plant crops, wheat, barley, corn, millet, beans, and squash began to be cultivated. No longer was it necessary to roam about hunting and gathering. Animals and plants were increasingly brought under human management. This both allowed and kind of required permanent settlements rather than a nomadic existence. With agricultural success, these settlements grew in size and human population skyrocketed. And humanity had now emerged even more profoundly from the natural order. No longer was it merely the top predator on land and the most versatile of all foragers, but humans had become, in a sense, the proprietor and manager of earthly affairs, deciding which plants and animals will increase and which will decrease. This is probably where the idea of dominion came from. We can reflect on the moral value of this development, and well, we may, but certainly it was a major turning point in the story of us. Now, there was this thing called human economy. There were surpluses, and there were valuable artifacts to be defended. Hence, there were more specialized social roles to negotiate, more subtle forms of conflict and trickery to figure out, all of which called for more and more nuanced intelligence, which was made possible by our developing mostly after birth brains. Within just a few thousand years, we then have writing, written language, we have the rise of complex civilizations, elaborate religions, and organized violence. Before long, we have sailing ships, long-distance trade, symbolic trade using money. We have myth, philosophy, mathematics, slavery, the Buddha's awakening, the Roman Catholic Church, 
Mozart, hospitals, Nazism, spaceflight, Disneyland, Fred Meyer, and the internet. Humanity, humanness, has emerged and emerges still. We are mentally and socially evolving into new dimensions of experience. Each new generation takes for granted ideas and ways of life which astonish the parents. And yet, we, for all this, we are still creatures of the earth. We are still primates, still mammals, still vertebrates, within our bellies and even inside our cells. We still carry primordial single-celled organisms which have been living continuously from the very earliest days of life. Our human DNA carries the story of our entire evolution as it does for every creature and in the womb we grow speedily through the whole sequence from microbe to glob to tadpole to human to our unique self which will then be shaped by our also evolving culture and our particular setting within the culture. This is our magnificent and mind-blowing story and we are living it still. Day to day, we tend to be preoccupied with the latest news and our own fluctuating place within the human social order. Fair enough. It takes a lot of attention. But it is wise and deeply comforting, I find, to remember that the universe, in its great mystery, has given rise to us. With all our cleverness, and richness of feeling and all our weird ideas. We remain sons and daughters of the earth, children of an immense, exquisite creation. We are cousins to all life, even if we do spend an inordinate amount of time gazing into the mirror. The story of our heritage is deeper and wider than we will probably ever fully apprehend. Let us know it, feel it, and embrace it with appropriate humility and a sense of exaltation.